as we come tonight to Job chapter 11. We should remind ourselves just a little bit about the structure of the book of Job. Again, as I've said before, we have the first two chapters where we're sort of given the scene behind the scene, where we see what was happening spiritually in the heavenlies behind the curtain between God and Satan, and then on earth with this man Job, and how sort of in this uh, heavenly competition between God and Satan, God allowed everything that Job had to be taken away from him. First, his family, that is his adult children, all of his wealth. Secondarily, the, um, the health he had enjoyed up to that point. And it was a legitimate and, and a severe crisis for Job to live through these things. Well, Job uh, at first just sat in quietness for seven days, and he had three friends who came and sat with him. And then we saw it several weeks ago in Job chapter 3, where Job just sort of gave vent to this huge agony that had built up within his soul. And chapter 3 was a very low and depressing chapter, with Job simply recounting uh, how, how he wished he had never been born, how he had died at childbirth. Then his friends began to respond. Uh, first, there was the response of uh, Bildad, excuse me, the, the response of Eliphaz, then the response of Bildad, and, and then now the third of Job's friends is going to respond, this man named Zophar. So basically, this is what we have tonight in front of us. We have the reply of Zophar, Zophar's advice to Job in chapter 11. Then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Job's response to Zophar. So that's what we're going to cover here this evening. And when we're done with this evening, we will have completed the first round of Job's um, dialogue with his friends, where each one of his three friends have spoken to him, and he has replied to each one. So here we go, uh, Job chapter 11, starting out verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namanathite, answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak, and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. This fellow named Zophar, this friend of Job, speaks the last of all three of Job's friends. But perhaps he speaks the most arrogantly and with the most attitude of confrontation against Job. We could say that Zophar was a severe man, that he didn't have a lot of compassion for Job. And he simply says, you saw it right there, very strongly saying in verse 2, uh, should a man full of talk be vindicated? Zophar had enough of Job's protest to innocence. You see, Bildad and Eliphaz both had the basic advice to Job. Job, we know why this crisis has come upon you. It's because you're in sin. The solution for you is in humble confession and repentance and getting right with God again. Well, in response to that, Job, in the integrity of his heart, protested that he was innocent of any particular sin for why this calamity would come upon him. Now, by the way, we know from Job chapters 1 and 2 that Job was correct, right? We know that. His friends didn't know that he was correct, but Job knew that he was correct. Well, Zophar had just about enough of Job's claims to innocence. 
And he said, listen, Job, you're a man full of talk. You should not be vindicated. And therefore, Job is going to continue on with a rebuke of Job. Did you notice what he said right there? He said, when you mock, should no one rebuke you? You see, what we sense here is that Job's friends are losing patience with him. In a remarkable display of friendship, they sat with him for seven silent days. And they only spoke in response to Job's agonizing, as was recorded back in Job chapter 3. They tried to help Job see that it must be some sin on his part that has prompted this great calamity of his life. But Job refused to see it. And the more they insisted upon it, the more Job stubbornly denied it, and the more frustrated the friends became. And we see the frustration in Zophar. The discussion is heating up. And so he says, if you noticed here, verse 4, for you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. Now let's be honest here. Zophar did not truthfully represent Job's words. Job did not claim to be pure and clean as if he were sinless and perfect. But in fairness to Zophar, Job certainly did claim to be in the right. And as far as Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz were concerned, this was the same as claiming to be clean and pure. You see, Job knew that there was no special or specific sin on his part behind the loss of his children, his wealth, his health, his servants, and all the rest of it. Even so, Job knew that he was a sinner in a general sense and that he could not be considered righteous compared to God. For example, in Job chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Therefore my words have been rash. In Job chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job knew that he had transgression. Job knew that he had iniquity. In Job chapter 9, verse 2, he said, How can a man be righteous before God? And again, we have several references throughout the book of Job, which tell us that Job knew that he was not sinlessly perfect. He wasn't claiming perfect righteousness. Job's claims to be blameless, as he does make several times, refer to the fact that there was no special or particular sin on his part that prompted his great suffering. Now, indeed, this is what we know. Again, Job's friends don't know it. Job doesn't even know it exactly. But God even recognized Job as being blameless, right? It's said several times in chapters 1 and 2. But Zophar was saying, Job, you're claiming to be perfect. We know you're not perfect. Why don't you just give up on this, you know, I'm so perfect and I never do anything wrong business and repent of your sins. As a matter of fact, I want you to see what he says here in verse 6 because it's a radical statement. In verse 6 he says, Know for, therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. You see, in the thinking of Zophar, not only was Job wrong to claim to be either pure or clean, but in the thinking of Zophar, Job was actually so guilty before God that he deserved far worse than he actually received. Now, I want you to consider this. Job lost all ten of his children. He lost every bit of wealth that he had. He lost the support of his loving wife. He lost his health. He lost the friendship and companionship of his friends. He has lost everything. And Zophar looks at him square in the eye and he says, you know what? God's being good to you. He should have taken even more away from you. I'll say it again. 
Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. I'm going to be very straightforward with you. This, this, this statement of Zophar and understanding it in the whole context of the book of Job is very challenging to me. It makes me understand that Zophar here sounds like a man who has carefully studied a particular theological idea, especially what we might call Reformed theology, the idea known as total depravity. You see, in this idea, the sinfulness of man, both the sinfulness that we inherit from Adam and the sinfulness that we actually practice in our life, the sinfulness of man is so great that one could say regarding every suffering of life, know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Right? I mean, listen, if we are fully steeped in this theology of the depravity of man, then what else could you say to Job? He'd say to Job, look, Job, everybody knows you're such a sinner. We're all such sinners that God's being better to you than to you. I know all this has been taken away, but God is actually being good to you. I like the way that one commentator named Bradley captures the idea of Zophar. This is what he says, quote, So far from being unjust and cruel, God has spared thee the full measure of thy deserts. He puts forward, that is, for the first time in its naked force, the full and logical conclusion of the creed which he and his friends held as an essential tenet of their faith. Now look, I have to say that I find much in Reformed theology that is true and biblical and admirable. But I find it fascinating that when Zophar gives the answer from Reformed theology to Job... He's wrong. He's wrong. Zophar is among the miserable comforters who were actually quite wrong in their analysis and advice to Job. And at the end of the book of Job, God says they were wrong and their advice was wrong. Whatever the merits are of the theological idea of total depravity, it did not speak to Job's circumstance at all. Now listen, I'm not trying to say that the idea of total depravity is wrong. I'm just saying that it is completely misapplied to Job's situation. And I would have to say that this is my biggest problem with some aspects of Reformed theology. Not the ideas in themselves, but sometimes those ideas are given an application that the Bible never intends. And I just find it very interesting that when Zophar gives the answer to Job from Reformed theology, he's wrong. Well, Zophar is going to go on here, starting here at verse 7. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born to a man. You see, after instructing Job in the doctrine of total depravity, Zophar went on to teach Job about the transcendence of God. Therefore, in, Job, in Zophar's thinking, Job was wrong to question God. Listen, 
Joe, let me explain this to you. God is so far beyond you. He's so sovereign. He's so mighty. He's so majestic that you can't even begin to understand him. So stop trying to figure it out. Then the next lesson in, jo- in excuse me, in Zophar's theology is contained where he says in um, verse 10, uh, or excuse me, uh, yes, verse 10, if he passes by, imprisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? You see, the next lesson in Zophar's theology was not just the transcendence of God, but then the sovereignty of God. You see, Zophar believed that the best thing Job could do was just accept this punishment from God instead of protesting the injustice of it. In Zophar's mind, Job's punishment was just, and God was actually giving Job less than he deserved. Again, I want you to operate under this premise. Can you see how Zophar is analyzing the situation from many of the same ideas? It would be wrong to say that Zophar was a Reformed theologian, but I will say this, that he shares many of the same ideas with them. And as he analyzes the situation, he says, Job, you deserve it. You're fallen. You're totally depraved. God's punishment of you is just, and you should stop complaining about it. You deserve it. This is the funny thing. Don't we know the story from the first two chapters of the book of Job? Did Job deserve this? No! That wasn't the point at all. Zophar was wrong. Matter of fact, he goes on here and he says, he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? That's in verse 11. Here Zophar implied that what Job was wanted was for God to turn his head aside from justice. Zophar wanted Job to know that it was wrong and indeed wicked to wish that God would not consider the deceit and the wickedness of man. And in this case, he meant Job's deceit and wickedness. I find it very interesting what he says at the end of verse 12 there. Did you catch that little proverb? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born to a man. <laughs> Here, Zophar simply called Job stupid. He, uh, he, he associated him with the empty-headed man who will be wise as soon as wild donkeys start giving birth to human beings. It's not going to happen. You see, the sharpness of his sarcasm is very, very much on display here. And so far, for him, as with others who share his basic theological perspective, there was no mystery in Job's situation whatsoever. No mystery to Zophar. Job, God's sovereign, God's just, you're a sinner, and therefore you should just be thankful that you're not worse off. You see, that's the idea of Zophar. Well, now he's going to give Job some advice. Look now at verse 13. He says, If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery because you would, excuse me, and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than the noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning, and you would be secure because there's hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down, and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor. It's, you got to love this of Zophar. Job, it's not complicated. It's not mysterious. 
If iniquity in your hand, as he says here in verses 13 and 14, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away. You see, all Job has to do in Zophar's opinion is to repent. And then he says, if you would do that, you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away. Oh, that's what Job longed for. Job longed just to wake up and say, oh, it was all a bad dream. I've forgotten all about it. It never really happened. He just wanted to forget all of the misery. And that's what Zophar dangles before him. And he says, Job, it can all be like that. All just what you want from this. If you'll just admit that the cause of all of this is the fact that you're such a terrible sinner and you brought this all upon yourself. Because Zophar was wrong in understanding the cause. He did know something of what the cure would be like. The cure would be for like Job to be able to forget all about it that it ever happened. And then he says, if you'll just do this, your life would be brighter than the noonday and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor. You see, Zophar encouraged Job to confess and repent of his sin by showing him that God would honor him and bless him, restoring him to a bright, confident future where people would admire him once again. But at the end here, look at verse 20. He gives Job a warning and a rebuke. He says, but the eyes of the wicked shall fail and they shall not escape and their hope loss of life. Here Job, uh, excuse me, Zophar encouraged Job to confess and repent by warning him of the consequences if he did not. Surely he would not escape a greater display of God's displeasure and he says the only hope for the wicked is the loss of their life now again before we get into chapter 12 and job's response to zophar and might i just tell you job is not going to take this sitting down right job is going to protest with all of his strength against zophar and his words because zophar had some very strong statements for job but what i want you to understand is that there is much to admire in the theology and philosophy of Zophar and Job's friends. They say much that is generally true and valuable, and it is, in general, backed by the wisdom of the ancients. They believed in God's power. They believed in God's absolute righteousness. They believed that God would forgive a sinner. They believed that God would receive the sinner back into favor if the sinner responded correctly to the punishment that God had apportioned. And don't we all believe that? Yet, the application of their belief, their deeply held beliefs about how God and life and the universe all works, it was completely wrong in Job's situation. You see, the reason for Job's crisis was completely beyond the conception of Job's friends. They were confident that they understood the situation. Have you ever heard the phrase, to think outside the box, right? There's a box that you can think in, you know, and sometimes you have to think outside of the box. Well, let me tell you, the idea that Job's calamity was actually rooted in this competition between God and Satan in the heavenly realm, that was completely outside of the box for Job and his friends. So what did they do? They tried to take Job's situation and fit it into the box that they did have. And that box might be fine, 
99 times out of 100, maybe 999 times out of 1,000. But it wasn't right in Job's situation. And this was the source of Job's great agony and stubbornness. So let's get into Job's response here, right? Chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I gotta say, I love Job. First of all, Job is just, he's getting sarcastic here, right? Ho ho! Boy, you guys are the smartest guys in the universe. And you know what? When you die, all wisdom will die. I mean, you could just hear Job's tone of voice in all of this. Oh, you are the people. You've got it all figured out. And then he protests and then gets a little bit indignant. He says, listen, I have understanding as well as you. Indeed, who does not know such things as you? You tell me that God is just. You tell me that God is powerful. You tell me that people are sinners. We know all of this, Job says. You see, in rebuke to Zophar and his friends, Job made two points. First of all, he insisted that he himself was a man of understanding. And secondly... He said that the theological principles presented by Zophar and the others were really very widely known. All your boasted wisdom, you're just stringing together one phrase after another. It's sort of greeting card theology. It's no good. In response, in responding, I should say, Job is going to speak very plainly about the wisdom and the greatness of God. Okay, verse 4. I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him, the just and the blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of the one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. Here you see Job's frustration rising within him. First of all, I'm mocked by my friends, he says in verse 4. Job complained that even though he was a godly man, the one who called on God and he answered, even though he was a man who was just and blameless, as he says there, even so, he is mocked and ridiculed. I have to say something before we go on here. We know, don't we know? His friends didn't know, but we know. We read chapters 1 and 2. We know that Job was innocent. No, not in the sense of being sinlessly perfect. We're not trying to say that. But he was innocent of any special or specific sin that brought all this calamity upon him. Job was innocent. And the way that innocent Job was mocked by others reminds us of the way that Jesus endured mocking on the cross. Even when he was mocked by the soldiers who beat him, and when he was mocked by the chief priests as he hung on the cross, and he's even mocked by those who were crucified with him. The Job goes on to say, a lamp is despised in the thought of the one who is at ease. You see, Job remembers what his life used to be like. He used to call on God and receive an answer. In those bright days, he didn't feel like he needed a lamp because his life was at ease. Now it's all different, and his friends only mock and misunderstand him. You know, you you don't feel like you have much of a need for a flashlight when it's sunny outside and, you know, the, the sun is lighting up the whole universe. But then suddenly when it gets dark, you feel like, man, I wish I had a flashlight. Well, Job's saying, you know, I used to need the light. 
It was around me all the time, but now I'm it's gone. It's darkness all around me, and I need the lamp. And then in verse 6, he, he points out how unjust life seems. He says, those who provoke God are secure. You see, it seemed to Job that his life and prior understanding was upside down. Before, everything seemed to make sense to Job. The righteous seemed to be blessed, and the wicked seemed to be afflicted. But now it's all different. Job knows that he's righteous and he's afflicted. And he thinks, you know, I know a lot of wicked people who are blessed. Job did not give up on God. But you know what he had to give up on? His prior conception of God. You see, he thought of God of answering everything in a thing that, in a way that was easy to figure out. God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. Okay, that makes sense of the universe. So I'm going to look around and I'll see the people who are blessed and I know that they're righteous. I'm going to look around and I'm going to see the people who are cursed and I know that they're wicked. It's very simple to figure that out. And Job had all of this turned around in his life. Now, starting at verse 7, Job is going to explain to Zophar, to us, and to his other two friends that he understands the ways of God, right? Zophar was trying to give him the, the lecture in basic theology, right? Job is going to try to prove to Zophar and his friends, I don't need your lecture in basic theology. I know these things. So look here, starting at verse 7. He says, but now ask the beasts and they will teach you, and the birds of the air and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea, and it will explain to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the mouth test taste food? Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding." Job here expands on the idea that he first made back in chapter 9. He said, indeed, who does not know such things of these? And so now he's going to explain, as I said, these basic things of theology. And he says, we all know that the Lord has done this. We all know that God is powerful. We all know these things. They're basic. But look, he's going to continue on here in verse 13. And what is actually a very beautiful description of the power and the wisdom of God. Look at it here, verse 13. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered, and he makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted one of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of the darkness and brings shadow and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. You see, in this section, Job rebuked the previous speech of Zophar, especially where Zophar criticized Job for not knowing God and he likened him to the empty-headed man. But here Job saying, listen, I know these things about God. God knows what he can do. Excuse me, I know what God can do is what Job was saying. 
And so he says in a very beautiful way, if you notice that in verse 14, he says, if he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. With wonderful poetic beauty and repetition, Job described the power and the majesty of God. He showed that God has power over material things, right? If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. That's it. If God destroys to destroy, decides to destroy something, forget it. You can't fix it. He showed that God has power over men. He said, if he imprisons a man. He showed that God has power over minds. That's a very powerful thing where he says, the deceived and the deceiver are his, in verse 16. He showed God's power over the wise, where he said he leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of judges. Uh, he showed that God's power is over rulers, where he says he loosens the bonds of kings and he leads princes away plundered. He showed God's power over the eloquent. He deprives the trusted ones of speech. He showed God's power over the darkness. He showed God's power over the nations. You see, all of this is Job's way of describing the fact that he knows God's power. Notice this, though. What does he say at the very end there? He says, he takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth. That's right there in verse 24. Here Job extends his description of the power of God to the idea that God can take away the understanding of even great men. And when he does this, they grope in the dark without light. Isn't that amazing? This idea of here who are men who are brilliant, they understand things, they're, they're men of wisdom, but God can take away their wisdom and their understanding, and then suddenly they're like blind men searching in the dark for the light. What's interesting is you just wonder if he's not thinking about his friends here. Guys, look, I know you're normally pretty smart. I know you're normally wise men. But for some reason, it seems like your understanding has been taken away and you're groping like blind men in the darkness. Or it could be just as much that Job is actually describing himself. He was a prominent man with great wisdom, great intelligence, right? But now he's a man wandering in a pathless wilderness as a man groping in the dark without light and who's staggering like a drunken man god i don't know what's going on with me i can't see my way through this problem where are you job sensed this with great pain in his own life well he's continuing on now into chapter 13 where he's going to challenge his critics look at it here starting at verse 1 he says behold my eye has seen all this my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I would desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent and it would be your wisdom. Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? 
Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. I want you to know this. Job is trying to make his friends understand that they're not as smart as they think they are. Job complained against the claim of superior knowledge on the part of his friends. You saw it right there in verses 1 and 2. My eye has all seen this. What you know, I also know. You guys aren't smarter than me. You can't figure this out better than I can. To them, and perhaps especially to Zophar, the situation seems so simple. Therefore, they thought that Job just had to be pretty ignorant or rebellious if they could, if he could not see what they could so clearly see. But Job says in a very dramatic way, did you see it there in verse 3? But I would desire to speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. Here Job develops a theme that will end with him later on in the book, virtually demanding that God make sense of his suffering. I, I want you to see something very interesting. I'm sort of jumping ahead a bit, a bit of myself in the book, but I can't resist it. Later on, when God reveals himself to Job, Job has to say before God, after God reveals himself to Job, Job says this before God. He says, I repent before you. I repent in dust and ashes. Now, what did Job have to repent of? Job did not have to repent of some special or peculiar sin that led him into this whole crisis because there was none, right? We know that from Job chapters 1 and 2. But what Job had to repent of is something that begins right here. Actually, you could say it begins even earlier, but we see it right here, and it's going to develop even more. Job will be so frustrated by his friends and their wrong analysis of his situation that Job will absolutely demand that God come down from heaven and make sense of his situation. And you know what God will show him? Job, I don't have to give you answers if I don't want to. I'm God and you're not. And when Job understands that, he says, I repent. It's wrong for me to demand this. But if you see what he says right here in verse 3, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. This will develop more and more throughout the book to where Job will make and I'll say it, yes, an arrogant demand before God that God justify his ways. And God will tell Job, I do not need to justify my ways before you. And so we'll see that in the last few chapters of the book of Job. But we can sense the deep frustration in Job that prompted this plea, I desire to reason with God. You see, it was bad enough when he couldn't make sense of his situation, but it was even worse when his friends persistently insisted on their wrong answer to Job's crisis. And as much as anything, it was their insistence on their wrong answers that sort of provoked Job to this sinful place. But then again, we've got to show you that Job could give it out just as good to his friends as they could give it back to him. Did you hear what he said there in verse 4? You forgers of lies, you're all worthless physicians. The same devastating frustration that led Job to wish that he was now dead now led him here in a very bitter response against his friend's accusations. And he says very strongly, if you notice, he says, Will you speak wickedly for God? Will you contend for God? In verses 7 and 8. 
Job's friends were very confident in their ability to speak for God. But since what they said was not true, they actually misrepresented God. They acted like lawyers on God's behalf. But you see, since they did not truly represent God, Job could rightly ask, will it be well when he searches you out? And then he says, he'll surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. And you have to love how he says it there at the end of verse 12. Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. His friends claim to know wisdom and to speak wisely, but Job dismissed their supposed guidance as mere platitudes. Their wisdom had no substance, no use, and it left Job feeling burned over. Truly, they were proverbs of ashes. So he's going to keep going on here in verse 13. He says, Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Now, I don't know, when I imagine this, Job speaking before his friends, his friends are starting to protest. Hey, hey, Job, you can't say that about us. What, what are you talking about? And Job holds it. No, 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 you hold your peace with me. You let me speak. I'm not done yet, Job's trying to say. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He shall also be my salvation. For a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See, now I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If I now hold my tongue, I perish. You got to admit, it's a dramatic statement Job makes here. His friends are worried about him. His friends are thinking, Job, have you forsaken God? Have you lost all of your senses? And he says, no, 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 you let me finish. I'm not done yet. And then he says in a very powerful way in verse 15, you like that, right? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is the attitude that will see Job through his past crisis and his present crisis. He did not understand any of his situation. He knew that his friends were against him. He felt that God was against him and not for him. At the same time, he could exclaim, I feel like you're against me, God, but yet I will trust you. Isn't that beautiful? It's as if he was saying, I, I have no dependence except on God alone. If God were to slay me, if he were to destroy my life in this affliction, then with my dying breath, I will proclaim my trust in God. I think it's a very powerful thing that he says. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Writing fictionally in his great book, uh, C.S. Lewis, the book's The Screwtape Letters, supposedly correspondence between a senior devil and a junior devil, where he instructs the junior devil on how to more effectively temp, tempt and, and, and uh, afflict his human victim. This is what C.S. Lewis said uh, from a demon's perspective, fictionally, of course, about this dynamic of trials in the life of the believer. This is what he says. He wants them to learn to walk and therefore must take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, is he pleased even with their stumbles? Do not be deceived, Wormwood. That's the name of the junior devil. 
our cause, the devil's cause, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every stage of him seems to have vanished, and he asks why he has been forsaken, and he still obeys. That's where Job's at. Feeling utterly forsaken by God. God, where are you? You won't answer my questions. You won't defend me before my friends. You won't comfort me with your presence. But you know, Lord, I, I, I'll still obey you. I'll still trust you. It's beautiful. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, it's well worthy of observation that in these words, Job's an- Job answered both the accusations of Satan and the charges of his friends. Though I do not know that Job was aware that the devil had said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Has thou not set a hedge about him and all that he has? Yet he answered that base suggestion in the ablest possible manner. For he did in effect say, If God pulls down my hedge and lay me bare as the wilderness itself, yet I will cling to him in the firmest faith. It's a beautiful thing that he says. Now, Though he trusts God, it's funny. I don't know if you can say that Job has surrendered. I don't know if you can say that Job has given up. He has not given up. I love how it puts it here. Verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And you know, we just want to say, oh, hallelujah, Job. You're so spiritual. This is so wonderful. But notice what he says at the end of verse 15. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. (laughs) You guys aren't going to tell me that it's because I'm a sinner. I'm not buying into that. You see, before his crisis, Job believed himself to be a blameless and upright man, as indeed he was. He steadfastly clung to this throughout all his experience of calamity and throughout all the protests and the arguments of his friends. And even before God, he would defend his own ways, not in arrogance, but in determined connection with reality. In all of this, Job is a remarkable example of a man who will not give up what he knows to be true even in the midst of the storm. Now look, this is an area that is very difficult because undeniably such storms in life are helpful in shaking us from wrong beliefs. There have been people who have imagined themselves to be in the place of Job when actually it was sin that was responsible for their condition, right? They imagine themselves to be, oh, these noble sufferers like Job, when actually it was the discipline and the correction of the Lord, and they were just plain stubborn. But we have to say, in Job's case, he was stubborn in a right way. And so now, in verse 20, he's going to make his appeal to God. It's beautiful. And this is, this is characteristic, again. Notice, One thing that's very interesting about this back and forth between Job and his friends is that uniquely, Job talks to God. His friends don't talk to God. His friends talk to Job. But Job talks to God. And here he begins here in verse 20. He says, Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak, then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face? 
and regard me as your enemy. Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? Will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me, and you make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Isn't this beautiful in its poetry? But it's very tragic in the heart that Job lays out. You see, earlier, Job told God, this was back in chapter 7, do you remember it? When Job told God, just leave me alone. But now, in that contradiction that is in the heart of a man that is suffering like Job suffers, he says, please don't leave me alone. Don't withdraw your hand from me. Please don't. I have to say, when he says, do not withdraw your hand from me, it shows that at least a small sense, maybe a microscopic sense, Maybe you'd have to get like an atomic microscope to see it. But in the smallest possible sense, Job understood that God's hand was sustaining him in the midst of this great trial. We can understand his feeling of abandonment, yet Job could grudgingly admit that God's hand had been with him in the fire of affliction. He says, please don't pull your hand away from me. Don't let the dread of you make me afraid. Make me know my transgression and my sin. You saw that, right? Job wasn't trying to claim to be sinlessly perfect. Not at all. He says, make me know my transgression and my sin. As he says there in verse 23. And then he says, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? This is how Job felt. And again, I want you to remind you, I want to remind you of something. There was a dimension to Job's suffering that his friends couldn't understand at all. Oh, they, they, they could see the obvious things. They could see, oh, Job, you lost your kids. How painful for you. Oh, oh, Job, your wife has turned her back on you. How painful for you. Oh, Job, you lost all of your wealth. Well, that would bum anybody out. Oh, oh, Job, you, your health is shattered. You're living a life of intense pain and discomfort. Job, we understand that. But Job's greatest trial, perhaps, perhaps greater than all of those things, is he felt that God was hiding his face from him. Look, let's be honest. Do you think this was the first crisis Job ever experienced in his life? No, 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 no doubt. This was far deeper than any crisis he had ever experienced before. We understand that. But Job had had hard times before, but he always knew that God was there. He had that sense of God's presence, and you felt that in your life, haven't you? you you've been up under some great stress, some great pressure, some great crisis, but you, you just knew that God was smiling upon you. And it gave you a strength. Gave, I mean, but from the outside circumstances, people thought you were crazy. But you, you just knew, listen, God is with me in this. I can face it. Job did not feel that presence of God at all. And he felt like God was blowing him around like a leaf going back and forth. He says, you put my feet in the stocks. Notice that in verse 27. He felt that God was against him and he felt completely hindered and fenced in by God. He felt as if his feet were limited and his paths were closely watched. Look at how he concludes the chapter here in verse 28. He says, man decays as a rotten thing like a garment that is moth-eaten. You know, he started out 
this discourse back in chapter 12 by saying how great God was, right? Do you remember that passage that we looked at? How beautiful, how great, how majestic God is. And now he considers man and he says, man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Maybe he's looking at his own skin when he says that. Maybe he's feeling the own weakness in his own body as he says those things. He's just saying, listen, Zophar, you talk about the frailty of man. Bildad, Eliphaz, you talk about the weakness of man. I'm living it. And so now in chapter 14, Job is going to continue on in this speech that he gives after Zophar's accusations. And in chapter 14, verse 1, he's thinking about the grave and the afterlife. He says, verse 1 and 2, Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Now, in the last few verses of the previous chapter, chapter 13, he mentioned the frailty of man and his own weakness in particular. And so now he's going to expand on this thing. He goes, yes, that's how we are. We're few of days and full of trouble. We come forth like a flower. We flee like a shadow when we do not continue. You can just sense the despondency, the despair in Job. And then he goes on here, and it's very touching what he says here in verses 3 through 6. Again, to God. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one! Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. He says, God, you're looking at me. You open your eyes on such a one. He says, God, you see that I'm the rotting one. You see like I'm a flower who's fading away. You see that I'm a shadow that's vanishing. God, look upon me in mercy. And then continuing on in this feeling of despair, you see what he says there in verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. God, maybe you're demanding of me some perfection that I can't bring. Well, God, I can't do anything about that. Listen, God, if you demand perfect cleanness from me before you'll come back and be my friend, then I'm lost. Then he says, you've appointed my limits so that I cannot pass. Look away from me so that I may rest. Now again, I find this so fascinating. Do you see how Job is alternating back and forth? God, leave me alone. God, where are you? God, look upon me. God, look away from me. You sense the contradictions of this man in agony. And it would be so easy for us. Now, Job, you're not making sense. This isn't very logical. But listen, anybody who's lived through this kind of affliction, you know exactly what Job's talking about. You feel all of that at once, don't you? God, draw near. God, please stay away. God, please look upon me. God, please look away from me. That's exactly what Job's living through. Now, verse 7. For there is hope for a tree, if it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. 
Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. It's kind of funny. Job says, listen, I've seen trees that are cut down and they grow up again. Because it doesn't seem like that with a man. You put a man in the grave and he doesn't grow up again. There is no hope. A man dies and is laid away. As far as Job could see, death ends the existence of man. And after death, a man simply disappears. You, you, you like the question, and where is he? As he asked. As Job thought about it, it seemed so unfair to him. Why, Job thought, why should a tree have a better hope of resurrection than a man? So he says, a man lies down and he does not rise. They will not wake, awake or be aroused from their sleep. Here we come to another place in the book of Job that reflects the shadowy and uncertain understanding that the Old Testament had about the afterlife. Now look, there's no doubt that at least in this passage, there's going to be other passages where Job thinks differently. But at least in this chapter, we cannot deny Job thinks that when a man dies, he's dead, that's it. There's no life after death. So what do we say about that? Very simple. Job was wrong. Now there's other passages in Job where Job says, hey, for example, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. There's other passages where Job, again, full of contradictions, he, he, he has confidence in the afterlife. But in these depressed, downcast, morose passages, he says, listen, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for anybody. What do we say about it? Again, Job was wrong. And I'll explain again what we've explained before. We understand Job's lack of knowledge regarding the afterlife by understanding the principle of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, that Jesus Christ brought immortality and life to light through the gospel. The understanding of immortality was at best cloudy in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New Testament. For example, we could say that Jesus knew fully what he was talking about when he described hell and judgment, and therefore we rely upon the New Testament for understanding of the afterlife, not the Old Testament. Look, we also understand that this is not in any way take away from the truth of the Bible or the truth of the book of Job. It's true that Job actually said this. It's true that Job actually felt this. He was just incorrect in what he could not understand. Later on, God will challenge Job. He'll correct Job's presumptuous assertions regarding the afterlife, but that's later on in Job's chapter 38, where we'll see that in coming weeks. But here, uh, Job continues on in this chapter, verse 13. He says, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. Very powerful what Job says there, starting at verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave. 
Job didn't know much about the condition of man after death, but he supposed, perhaps he hoped, that it was better than his current misery. You know, dead people don't seem to be troubled by very much. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, God. And then he says, all the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. God, I wait for the change that you'll bring to my life that will change everything and relieve me from this agony. Now, it's very interesting because Job says, you shall call and I will answer you. Did you notice that in verse 15? Now, again, this is the idea of him being in the grave. Job is here hoping that after he dies, that his relationship with God is restored. He no longer hoped for a restoration with God during this life. He goes, okay, God, I'll give up on this life. Maybe it's better in the life to come. And again, we see the confusion, but perhaps the tension, you could say, in Job regarding the afterlife. When he says, you will call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. That's more hopeful than his previous statements. But again, we have to allow Job to have the contradictions that are within him, both because he has an uncertain revelation of the life to come, but also because of his own agony. But again, we see here in verses 16 and 17, where he says, but do not watch over my sin. You cover my iniquity. He desperately wanted God to not judge him according to the full measure of his sins. Please, God, have mercy upon me. Now in verses 18 through 22, we conclude sort of on a despairing note for Job. Notice this. He says, But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is removed from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They're brought low, and he doesn't perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. Isn't that powerful? Job pictures a great mountain crumbling away or a flood sweeping away great tracts of the earth. He considers that this illustrates the way that God sweeps away the hope of man. You see, Job understood the might and the power and the sovereignty of God, but at the end of chapter 14, that doesn't comfort Job. Doesn't say, oh, blessed assurance, God is sovereign. He goes, God, you're sovereign, you're powerful. And if you have decided to set yourself against me, I have no hope, absolutely none whatsoever. You see, in this very poetic outpouring in chapter 14, in the middle of the poem, he gives a glorious confidence. But now at the end of it, he's back into despair. Don't you see? Just a few verses before this, right? There he was, being very confident in the midst of it all. He goes, oh, you know, listen, I, I know you, you'll, you'll restore me. I know all of this. But yet at the end of it now, he's back in the midst of despair. It says at the end of there, verse 22, and his soul will mourn over it. Those words very fittingly conclude this section 
of Job's speeches to his friends and his prayers to God. His soul is genuinely in mourning. And much of what we read here is just simply the agonized outpouring of Job's feelings. I have to say, as we leave here chapter 14 in our study for this evening, I'm somewhat reminded of Jesus' words from the Gospels, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen, if you think about that statement of Jesus, on the one hand, it was a true and accurate description of how Jesus felt. He felt utterly forsaken by God the Father upon the cross. He felt it because not only did Jesus endure the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. We can fully understand how Jesus could say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the same time, if you want to give it a a more distant perspective, You cannot say that there was some permanent separation between the Father and the Son on the cross because 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us that God, meaning the Father, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross. According to the same principle, we can say of Job's suffering that his feelings were real and understandable. Yet there was a truth that went beyond his feelings that made sense of his suffering. But here's the point. That truth was completely veiled to Job. He couldn't see it. No, it was there, but he couldn't see it. And this is one of the great themes that really we come to again and again. Maybe we come to it every week as we teach through Job. Why shouldn't we? Because it's one of the great themes of the book. But listen, sometimes in the midst of our suffering, There is truth and there is reason for it that we just simply cannot see. We can trust that it's there. We can acknowledge it. We can take rest in it, but you can't see it. So we do not give full reign to our feelings, as Job was struggling with exactly at this point. Well, this concludes the first round of speeches. Oh, they're going to get into it again. You better believe it. Next up is Eliphaz, and we'll consider that with chapter 15 next week. But do you sense Job's great despair? But again, maybe, maybe the thing just to end with is just this last statement. We have to take comfort in the fact that Job talked to God. You know, his outpourings of despair, his frustration, his pain, you have to admit, he's taking it all to the right place. He's taking it to God. And that's what we should do as well. Father, that is our prayer. You know, Lord, none of us in this room, none of us would presume to think that we suffer in the same way that Job suffered. No, Lord, it's, it's much worse, much more intense what Job suffered compared to any of ours. But Lord, we're not here tonight to compare our sufferings to Job's. We're just here to learn what we can learn from his great sufferings. And Lord, how you were in your hidden way upholding him by your hand. Help us, Lord, to understand and to receive that there can be a true and a hidden a reason and foundation for what we go through, even when it is absolutely veiled to us. We understand that. 
and we receive it tonight. Help us to take all of our sufferings to you. In Jesus' name, amen.